My name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about the other German filmmaker that's not Werner Herzog. Of course, we're talking about Wim Wenders. Uh, you mean the other, other one, because of course there's also Rainier Werner Fassbender, is there not? That's true, but I think that when people talk about like new German filmmakers that are still making movies, it goes, Herzog vendors in the like public consciousness or even the film festival wait what german filmmaker guy can we get here get wenders up here he can he can do a short right he does those all the time well it's definitely true that fassbender has been dead for 40 years so so yes i guess it is herzog and vendors in that order and i gotta say of, of the big three those big three new German cinema guys, Vendors is always the one I felt the most distance from. Same. A few years ago, I think in like 2016, I remember the Lightbox in Toronto did a retrospective. So like I saw most of the popular ones there. And I mean, to be honest, I like I liked them well enough, but they didn't they didn't stay with me. And uh, I haven't really gone deep into his middle or lower tier work. So that's the perspective I came to this week with. What's weird is that he's a director that's so present and he does so much stuff that I should love him and be obsessed with his work and all of the kind of weird offshots and experiments that he does. Like he almost has a Steven Soderbergh, I'll try whatever I want to do kind of mood to his filmography. But for some reason, I've seen many of his films and even the ones that I like, I'm like, oh yeah, these are good, but it doesn't make me want to go and hunt down the rest of his work. Another reason I'd sort of avoided him or at least hadn't really considered him one of my guys is because I mean, the critical consensus is that the last 20 or 25 years of his career has brought very diminished returns. Like, whenever he's had a new movie out, I haven't really rushed to see it. Hey, hey, he had Pina. People loved Pina, right? I did see Pina, actually. That is one I saw theatrically in first run. And uh, it was it was, it was was cool. It was fun. The 3D, I liked it. Yeah, people it. are like, Vim Vendors is back! And then Vim Vendors was like, I'm only shooting my movies in 3D! And you're like, oh, okay. You want James Franco in 3D in a kind of stiff drama? No, no thank you. Well, it's going to play all the film festivals and then disappear off the earth. James Franco was also in Queen of the Desert, so he's really uh, cornered the market on the the dregs of the late period New German cinema. I do want to say, though, as is almost always the case, doing a deeper dive into him for this podcast has given me a new appreciation. I had... A really good time watching these movies this week. I was intimidated at first because of how long most of them are, but they really feel like places where you live for three or four, or well, two or three hours. And uh, I, I really liked being in these places. I found them very warm and funny and emotionally rich and textured places. How about you? I think that a key to understanding Wender's work is knowing that he just loves to soak in vibes. I was reading a book I have on him on film, which collects a bunch of essays, conversations, articles about making his movies. And in some of his earliest writings, he says that like the first short film he ever made, he took a camera, put it down, stuck it out the window and just filmed the street until the film was done. Because that's just what he likes to do. And I think that knowing that, brings a kind of contextual understanding to the way that most of his films will roll out. Even the ones that on the tin say that they're going to be like exciting Patricia Highsmith adaptations. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, it's exciting. 
But this is, you know, Vendor's perspective on all of this. Yeah, you live with these characters. You don't always necessarily get to know every single thing about them, but you live with them. And you soak in the mood and the landscapes. And even if you don't know the full biography of these characters, you pick up on so many details, so many quotidian details. And eventually, by the end of the two and a half hour runtime, it coalesces into something sometimes emotionally devastating. And I also think... These movies give lie to the idea, you know, that what really matters in cinema is a tight script that takes you from point A to point B and point C and that doesn't waste time on, you know, extraneous scenes that don't move the plot forward. I mean, some of these movies are like 80% extraneous scenes that don't move the plot forward and they're beautiful places to spend time. He's been very honest about the fact that he has no interest in plot. Zero. Absolutely nothing. Which would explain why a lot of his films are mostly improvised. And he's been very clear about that, especially his early pictures, like the Road Movie Trilogy. He'd pull a Jean-Luc Godard, wake up in the morning, decide, okay, what are we going to be doing? We worked on it a little bit the night before. Let's figure it out when we go out and make the movie. But knowing that... Even knowing that he's directed a lot of documentary films, this Road movie trilogy, and we watched one of them, Kings of the Road, he made, and he was very clear that he wanted it to be visually lush, that it did not look like a documentary, that he brought even natural lighting, but framed it in a way that it was picturesque and not just, oh, we put the camera down here and we captured whatever came out about it, which I think is very important when you approach these movies. So Kings of the Road from 1976, it is the third in his informal road movie trilogy after Alice in the Cities and The Wrong Move. It's shot beautifully by his uh, regular DP, Rudolf Mueller. It's in black and white, by the way. And across its 175-minute runtime, it follows two characters as they travel along the West German side of the border in this shambling bus. The two men begin as strangers to each other. The owner of the bus is Bruno, played by Rudiger Vogler. He's an itinerant film projectionist and handyman who's traveling from town to town to work at these crumbling rural movie theaters. The companion is Robert, played by Hans Zischler, who we first encounter driving his car into the river in a half-baked suicide attempt. Something in the pace of this movie reminds me a little bit of Taste of Cherry, where because You know, it's established early on, it's about somebody thinking of killing himself. That gives the movie license to just take its time. Like, we're on our way to oblivion, so, you know, why not relax? Why not stop to smell the roses on the way to oblivion? It's just guys being guys, going to movie theaters, fixing them up. A lot of them real movie theaters. And according to vendors, a lot of the people who show up who own the movie theaters are the actual owners. Because he wanted that little dose of realism in it. And... Like Will said, you get to know these guys, nothing very clear, a little bit of emotion here, a little emotion there, perhaps one of them confronts their father, and don't really have an emotional breakthrough, but you understand where he's coming from. And most importantly, it's all about that nice music and cruising down the road. If you don't like the idea of just moving, of seeing new things, you are not going to like 
probably any of Inventor's movies. It's also a movie that's loaded with suggestion. There's a sense of a lot of uh, subtext here, none of which is clearly stated. I mean, the fact that they're driving from cinema to cinema and all of these cinemas are showing, you know, porn movies and exploitation films, uh, the fact that they're on the West German side of the border, the fact that Germany in this movie sort of feels a little bit tired, sort of feels a little bit defeated, but is also... You know, it's it's beautiful as well, and, there, and there's a lot of warmth there. See, Will, it was the death of cinema even in 1976. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess so. I guess so. It, it It's always cyclical, isn't it? So there are also in this movie, like, one of the guys doesn't have a father. The other guy has an estranged father. Venders himself was born in 1945, just at the very tail end of the war. So the Second World War and and the Nazis would have been living memory in Germany at this time in a way that they aren't really right now. I mean, you even get a cameo appearance of Hitler as a big candle in Kings of the Road. The legacy of that is still so, so potent and certainly hangs over a movie like this that shows, you know, so much kind of like poverty and so much defeat in Germany. And I mean, you know, these guys who don't really have fathers... I mean, maybe I'm reaching here, but it sort of feels like it could be metaphorical for what Vendor's whole generation felt like. I mean, I know that Werner Herzog has talked a lot about he wanted to make Nosferatu because he wanted to sort of reconnect with the great German cinema of the 20s because his his generation was fatherless. I feel something, I don't know, I feel something similar in this movie. And it's also about friendship, but a friendship that isn't really defined by them doing acts for each other, just hanging out. And I think that's something that you see very rarely in cinema. The idea of characters just in their own presence and any kind of weight will be taken from that as opposed to, you know, them in conflict or breaking up. None of that really matters. You feel a friendship formed throughout the movie because they're there for each other and they do fun things here or there with each other, like riding around on a motorcycle. But there's no real conflict there. You know, we live in a conflict-based storytelling style. And to see vendors just luxuriate in not just these beautiful images, but also these personalities is his style from end to end, probably at its purest here. I mean, I'm not a Vim Vendors expert, but from what I've read, people are like Kings of the Road. This is when he kind of achieved this, you know, flowing style that he had been chasing since he had started making movies in 1970. It's great to just hang out with these guys and see them hang out with each other and see that bond form just through the act of being, the act of living rather than rather than any big dramatic exchanges. So not long after this, he made, you know, one of his most commercial movies, 1977's The American Friend, which, I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, tonally, structurally is quite different from Kings of the Road. It's plot oriented. It's a straight up thriller based on a Patricia Highsmith novel. Clearly, there's a lot of Hitchcock influence here. But also, I mean, it's breezy, man. Yeah. And I have in my notes existential, you know, which is a word that you could apply to pretty much all the movies that we watched for this episode, right? Even in the big suspense sequences, which are stretched out in that classic Hitchcockian way, like where Bruno Gantz, who in the movie plays a man who has a blood sickness and is approached by someone who tells him, hey, will you become an assassin? You're going to die soon. Don't you want your family to be taken care of? I may even have some doctors that could help you out do this one thing we have no attachment you will never be accused which leads to like a long sequence where uh, Gantz is stalking someone there is still a kind of airiness 
to it as it plays on screen. That there, the tension isn't derived from the tightening of screws, but by the fact that it's just kind of passing you by. Also important to note that, you know, Bruno Ganz is a humble, you know, just a humble guy who ends up being targeted by the talented Mr. Ripley himself, played by Dennis Hopper, the great Dennis Hopper, who, because of just a personal slight that Bruno Gans displays towards him for being an art forger. Dennis Hopper reverse engineers this elaborate scheme to, you know, fake a medical diagnosis for Bruno Gans. Or like Bruno Gans in the movie does have a serious disease, but Dennis Hopper and his associates make it so that like he gets a fake diagnosis that it's like he's going to die much sooner than he thinks he will, all to coax him into becoming a hired assassin. But the crazy thing is, the interesting thing is, you know, it's not like crimes and misdemeanors where you spend the whole movie finding out you can bury the guilt for murdering somebody as long as you like really work hard at burying that guilt and spend the whole movie burying that guilt. In this one, Bruno Gans kills someone and it's like, oh, um, it's, it's actually it's actually pretty easy, you know? In a way, Ripley and him, you know, they become the friend that you hang out with to be your worst self with. But there's limits to that, Will. There's limits. In terms of that word existential that I wrote down, you know, in this movie, you find out how how easy it actually is to be corrupted. Yeah, like Bruno Gans, he kills someone. The person's back is turned to him, doesn't know who he is. It's nothing to him. Once he's out of there, life goes on. And this film was a big hit to the point that uh, the art filmmaker of Hollywood, Francis Ford Coppola, took Vim Vendors under his wing to make a little film called Hammett in 1982. I know me and Will, we did not watch it. But uh, Vendors was very clear that this was kind of a miserable experience for him. So miserable that during a break in the film, he made The State of Things, a film about a group of filmmakers remaking a Roger Corman film who run out of celluloid, so they have to go looking for it to be able to complete the picture. That sounds really good. What Roger Corman movie are they remaking? Oh, I forget. It's one of the apocalyptic ones about the end of the world. Uh, I had the title in front of me, and now I can't seem to find it. Is it Last Woman on Earth? No, it's not Last Woman on Earth. And the thing is, Roger Corman appears as himself in a cameo in the movie. Oh, fantastic. One of many directors to make cameo appearances in Vendor's films. Yeah, we didn't even talk about the fact that all the gangsters in The American Friend are played by filmmakers like Samuel Fuller, Nicholas Ray. Samuel Fuller is actually the cinematographer in The State of Things. And he has like a lot of great scenes where it's that classic, you know, uh, grumpy Samuel Fuller talking about uh, making movies and how hard it is. And according to Vendors, he made the gangsters filmmakers because, you know, filmmaking is not easy. And he's like, oh yeah, these people will probably be in these positions of power. Did, uh, did you watch Paris, Texas from 1984? I did indeed. Yeah, one of his one of his biggest and most enduring successes. I mean, this is, this is a very beautiful movie, isn't it? I mean, come on. I mean, it's one of the most colorful movies. Like, when you take a still of it, it just pops off the screen. It's the reason that if you go on any social media app, people will have like images from it as their background. Because even if you don't know what it is, it's so vivid in even just one frame that it works. And I think that it also works because we have the great man himself, Harry Dean Stanton, finally in the lead of a motion picture. If people haven't seen this one, Paris, Texas, and I'm sure a lot of you have, but you know, it, it opens, Harry Dean Stanton has disappeared for four years. He's gone a-wandering after his wife, played by Nastasia Kinski, 
really punching above his weight there, if you ask me. 34 years older <laughs> than her. Yeah, no wonder she got out. Well, we know why she got out at the end of the movie. Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, he's He's given up their child to his brother and his wife, his brother played by Dean Stockwell, and he's gone wandering. Nobody knows if he's alive uh, at the start of the film, but then he turns up, but he turns up in this sort of dazed state. He doesn't explain where he's gone. He doesn't explain why he's been gone, but he comes back. Uh, Dean Stockwell picks him up. He sort of reacquaints himself with his son, who's now almost eight years old. You know, he's been gone more than half of his son's life. And for much of the second half of the movie, he goes out looking for his estranged ex-wife, the Nastasia Kinski character. And I mean, I guess we probably shouldn't spoil anything after that. We spoil movies all the time on this podcast, but this is one that really benefits from, you know, the emotional wallop of all the accumulated details. And then, you know, that, that final that final scene between the two characters. I mean, God, what do you even say about it? It's just one of the most devastating things ever. What's amazing about the movie is that it really understands that Harry Dean Stanton is kind of like a pathetic figure. And it does so right from the get-go by putting him in the most miserable place anyone could be alone, essentially dying on screen. And he stays silent for so long before he starts talking. So it's like you're connecting with him as the running time rolls out. You're creating an attachment with him, this very sad man who just wants to do things differently, just so it can lead to that big final speech that he delivers. And you're like, oh man, that hurts so much. I've been spending so much time with this person to get to this point. I mean, everybody around him is also perfectly cast. Uh, his son, played by the screenwriter's real-life son, just gives a completely natural kid performance. And nothing of it feels contrived, even though that, as we mentioned, it is visually dazzling. These cityscapes, these deserts just popping off screen with color. So beautiful. And I mean, this is a movie, like, like the, the fact that it's so beautiful helps give it this incredible emotional texture because this is a movie where there's so much pain simmering just under the surface. And a lot of that pain remains unspoken, at least until towards the end of the movie. But there are a lot of other feelings too. And those other feelings, I think, are really conveyed by the look of the movie. I mean, there's such warmth and beauty, you know, and these characters, they have these memories, they, there are these betrayals, there are un unimaginably painful associations with these memories. And there's also throughout this movie, you know, it conveys the low level pain of having someone who you were once intimate with become a complete stranger to you. And, you know, having unresolved feelings that will probably never be resolved. Uh, you wouldn't know anything about that, would you, Justin? I certainly wouldn't. No, we are very well-adjusted people who have never had any kind of emotional trouble in our lives. I exactly. I've always done the right things and been with people who have done the right things. Yeah, exactly. So I'm we're approaching this hypothetically, but, you know, you, you can you can imagine how effectively this movie com conveys that, that feeling to someone who has had it. But, I mean, it's not just the pain, you know. There, there's so there's such great beauty, uh, and life goes on because life has to go on. I don't know. I'm just gonna start rambling. I mean, it's such a, it's such a powerful and beautiful film. I love Robbie Mueller's work in this film. The fact that 
we see LA not from all the kind of iconic stuff, but from the suburbs looking down, like by the airport, watching planes take off. But it's still beautiful in the way that he shows it. This house on the hill looking down on all of these lights in a way that seemingly has never been captured on film before. The fact that just crossing the desert feels so hot and in your face. All of these hotels almost like leaping off screen in a way that you've never seen them before, even though they're just normal hotels. It's the way it's shot, the way it's framed, like everybody was firing on all cylinders here with something that was almost way more complicated. I read an essay where Vendor said that he wanted the film to like crisscross America, to go to like Alaska and all these other different places. And it was Sam Shepard that convinced him, no man, keep it simple, keep it within Texas, you'll find everything that you need there. And I think that simplicity is what makes the film as powerful as it is. Like the big confrontation, it takes a long time getting there. The last 50 minutes are basically dedicated to that. This, you know, struggle to finally let out these things that Harry Dean Stanton had to say. And when they're finally out there, they're more painful than you could ever imagine. And yeah, so much time is spent on the pursuit. So much time is spent trying to find Nastasia Kinski and because so much time is spent there, you have to linger in the emotional state. You have to just, you have to just be in that state of heartbreak and regret and the uncertainty of, you know, what will happen when, when you see this person who once meant so much to this, this character. Um, but then also a lot of that time is spent with him bonding with his estranged son, which gives it a whole different kind of emotional texture. It's like, that's quite beautiful. And, even if this, you know that even if this whole experience is leading to just more heartbreak, it is a bonding experience as well. You know, no, no scene in the movie is entirely painful and unhappy. Um, there, there's so much texture to it. There's always moments of joy that are being kind of grabbed out of the air, connections that are being made that weren't there before. And Harry Dean Stanton believed that they could never really exist, but he can see that it's there and he knows he can't really have it because of the things that have happened. But in those moments, like that scene where he's dressing up and he's like, I want to look like a dad. They're like, rich dad or poor dad? He's like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> She's like, Duh, there's no in between. Now, there were not a lot of, you know, international artists arthouse directors who had such success as vendors in the 1980s, such crossover success. And his other big crossover success was 1987's Wings of Desire. As many people may know, the classic Nicolas Cage film, City of Angels. <laughs> that's right. That's right. They finally got it right. Wings of Desire is that classic, you know, when you get into art house films, this will be on the monument before you. And you know what? It's really good. This film posits that angels watch over us. They listen to our thoughts and prayers. They empathize with us. They bear witness to our suffering. And they have terrible ponytails. <laughs> they feel in an emotional sense, but they're invisible, except the children. They cannot take part in our society. They're immortal, but they can't feel, you know, in a sensual sense, pleasure and pain. And for Damiel, the angel played by Bruno Gans, 
this is a painful existence, especially since he has fallen in love with a human woman, a trapeze artist. Now, when you say that plot like that, it sounds like it'll be, ah, he'll fall in love with this woman, and then suddenly he will do something that'll create a connection, and the bulk of the film will be about that. That is not true. The thing that works so well about Wings of Desire is it's mostly just the angels walking around, listening to people's thoughts. And even though some of those thoughts get very... um. Uh, poetic, if you will, in the sense that, like, those are never my thoughts. It'd be more like, meow, 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 meow. It is a beautiful thing to witness in the way that vendors creates that gliding camera through all of it, that you yourself feel like you're an angel watching all of these events play out, all of these little moments, creating humanity, creating the sense of this is what all of these people are thinking and the kind of love story and the decision to, I mean, don't want to spoil the movie, whatever may happen comes very naturally in such a way that when it happens, it just happens. There's no like big explosion or thing that needs to be defeated. It just happens. And that's what's so beautiful about the entire movie. Also, like Kings of the Road, it's a movie where the landscape or the setting seems so imbued with symbolic significance, although that significance is not explicitly spelled out. Like, so, you know, the movie takes place in this divided Berlin. There's a very key scene that takes place in front of the Berlin Wall. But, you know, they don't they don't say they don't call attention to the Berlin Wall. It's just there right there in the background. Peter Falk is in this movie memorably playing himself. We find out that he, too, was once an angel. Yes, the actual Peter Falk was an angel. And he's acting in a movie about the Nazi era. I don't know what exactly this means to me. You hear that and you're aware that these angels have been around so long that they've seen everything that humanity is capable of, including, like, you know, the Nazi era. They've seen the worst of humanity. They've seen the best of humanity. Like, when you see the Berlin Wall in this movie, I mean, maybe I'm just projecting this onto it because the Berlin Wall has since fallen, but... You know, I know it seemed like this very eternal object at the time, but I don't know, maybe Vendors was regarding the Berlin Wall as just another moment in history, just another historical signifier, one that signified this current moment that we're in. I mean, the angel in a dramatic moment jumps from the east to the west side. So, I mean, I, I didn't, but I could have written the word existential in my notes here again. And... This is a movie that makes one reconsider the feeling of being human, which, you know, since we all spend all day, every day being human, it's possible to take that for granted. And I think that the lengths of that, of the movie, is what makes it hit so hard as it does. That when you're kind of trapped for 90 minutes in this black and white world, all of these thoughts coming through of all of these people, while that is emotional in of itself, when it finally snaps back and a character is experiencing these things for the first time, you feel that joy in a way that you wouldn't if it had happened at the beginning of the movie, which a more conventional version of the story would have done. Yeah, and there's a key scene where a character bleeds, and it's not like any other scene in a movie where a character bleeds like the bleeding is symbolic of being human in this in that scene even though the angels in this movie don't experience you know when they're angels they don't experience the kinds of the sort of extremes of pain and pleasure that the people they watch over experience you know they're guarded as angels from feeling exactly the kind of despair that like for example the streetwalker character in the movie experiences but like 
pain is one of the things that makes us human in this movie. And being human, having access to all of those both emotional and sensual feelings is what it's all about. I love that this film had a sequel, Far Away So Close, that is basically just a thriller, an excuse to, you know, uh, cops and gangsters and angels get involved. Have you seen it, Far Away So Close? I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even know it existed until this week. Uh, I would love to see it. The whole gang got back. Bruno Ganz is in it. Uh, even Peter Falk is back. You couldn't, you couldn't have a movie in the in the Wings of Desire franchise without bringing back Peter fan favorite Peter Falk. <laughs> and, you know, after that, it's only smooth sailing for vendors, right? Uh-oh. Oh, no, I'm looking at IMDb. I mean, he has continually kept working and doing things in, like, short formats, plays. Like, he's always doing stuff. It's just... I haven't really had any interest in checking out most of it. Don't Come Knockin', that Sam Shepard film that Sam Shepard stars in? I remember seeing it on the wall of Roger's video as far as the eye could see. I do want to end this discussion by remembering what Mel Gibson said about the 2000 film Million Dollar Hotel. The Bono Vanity Project? Yes, directed by Mr. Vim Vendors. Mel Gibson said he thought it was boring as a dog's ass. Will told me this earlier, and I said, dog's ass are great. They can do so many things. They're obsessed with it. I mean... <laughs> They're obsessed with each other's. Yeah, I mean, dog's asses are always up to something. So I don't know. I don't know what Mel Gibson... Just just one of many things I disagree with Mel Gibson on. <laughs> well, uh, Vim Vendors, will you be checking out more of his films? Does, did this make you want to explore his filmography? Yes. In fact, it even made me want to check out some of the lesser ones. I never considered myself a Vim Vendors fan before. I am a Vim Vendors fan now. You're going to throw on those 3D glasses and hang out with James Franco a little I bit? I mean, it might take a little while to get there. Um, you know, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Kevin, and it goes, Hello, gents. Greetings from a new fan in Ireland. Fair play for focusing on Peter Watkins, political provocateur, unlikely Oscar winner, and uncompromising pioneer in the field of docudrama. You might find the following interesting. Many years ago, when I was attending university in Detroit, a film professor friend there had recently written a book about Watkins. He invited the director onto campus to speak after a screening of Punishment Park, the war game, his BBC docudrama, Kuladin, and his interesting, rarely shown, anti-war drama, The Gladiators, which he made in Sweden, in between Privilege and Punishment Park. As a cub culture reporter on the uni newspaper, I was of course eager to interview the director. The teacher duly set it up, though he did warn me in so many words that Watkins took himself pretty seriously and didn't suffer fools gladly. And how! He was about the least humorous filmmaker I've ever met. Along with other young cineasts, we entered the professor's office. Watkins sat at the desk, flicking through a magazine, and he continued to do so for the next 20 minutes or so. Before I could say anything, my fellow hack launched into a raft of enthusiastic questions about the mise-en-scene in Kuladin, or some such. Watkins gave him a withering look, grunted something, and then ignored him for the rest of the interview. Duly alerted, I kept the conversation, such as it was, on the socio-political aspects of his works, and extracted enough grumpy quotes to fashion something publishable. <laughs> That's funny. And uh, did make me think, what are some of your favorite grumpy interviews, Will? Because you've done a lot. Well, I mean, the one that comes to mind is that one that Jerry Lewis did a couple of months before he died. Did you see that at the time? I think it was for The Hollywood Reporter. They were doing a series of interviews with people in their 90s who are still active. And it was like, you know, Roger Corman, Carl Reiner, people like that, like uh, Mel Brooks. And uh, Jerry was not playing ball. And I encourage everyone to just 
to just look up that interview. Well, that followed that big article, right? That was like Jerry Lewis sucks ass about the guy like going to one of his stage shows. That article's amazing. I mean, you know, Jerry Lewis, obviously somebody who could experience a whole emotional gamut in in his life. And th- that, that interview is good. And I mean, you know, the quintessential, the all-time greatest, I think, grumpy director interview was, you know, that one between Peter Bogdanovich and John Ford that we've all seen the clip yes, of. Yes, where like John Ford wouldn't budge an inch. Yeah. Where it was like, could you talk about, you know, how you filmed Monument Valley? And he says, with a camera. <laughs> and he's just sitting in front of Monument Valley. Like John Ford went up there just to not answer any of his questions. Yeah, classic. I was actually thinking like, had you had any like celebrity, like mean interviews or have they mostly been pleasant? Um, I have to think. I feel like there have been one or two over the years that didn't go all that great, but... It wasn't like Bruce Willis on a radio show advertising Red 2 or anything no, like that. No, I, ca- I can't off the top of my head think of anybody who is an asshole. Well, thank you very much for that letter, Kevin. And our next letter is from Marco, and he goes, Dear Justin and Will, I'm a big fan of the podcast, and the discussion of Germans loving Bud Spencer brought a smile to my face. Let me assure you that you've only scratched the surface of Germans' love of Spencer. (laughs) They were incredibly (laughs) beloved by a generation of TV audiences and moviegoers. Germans coined a word for their very own subgenre of Westerns. I'm not going to say this word right. Prugal Western, meaning beating up based Western, (laughs) an expression you'd read in German TV magazines well into the 2000s. The movies were dubbed based on loose translations. They added lines and jokes. So while in the original footage of a landscape or a town might have been mostly silent in the German dub, you'd hear Bud or Terrence wisecracking from off screen. I feel people relate to them as presences that almost became detached from the movies. People in my experiences don't really prefer one or the other of the Trinity films, but they like to hang out with Buddy. Also, Germany at the time was a land rich with grumpy men who thought they were funny. So I think they liked that about Bud Spencer's groundedness and his lack of extravagance or elegance. There was always something seductive about these characters and the way they are the heroes without embodying any kind of virtue or special ability beyond beating people up real good. Germans, many of which weren't exactly in touch with their feelings, preferred Bud because of his lack of conventional romantic appeal, vulnerability, and often investment in the ostensible moral stakes of the plot. It is also worth pointing out that the German titles, more so than the Italian ones, presented them as a duo of friends. Almost all the German titles are something like two blank do are blank. I think German men specifically love the idea of a morally uncomplicated and unsentimental friendship where you'd mostly bust balls. Sounds like Kings of the Road. This might sound a bit negative, but I grew up... Man, if Kings of the Road starred Bud Spencer... Then you'd have something, yeah. This might sound a bit negative, but I grew up with these movies, and to this day, I own a Bud Spencer t-shirt while one of my best friends has a Terrence Hill equivalent. Best regards from Zurich, and thanks for the amazing podcast, which has so often helped me expand my horizons, Marco. I mean, this letter writer is not the only one with a Bud Spencer t-shirt now, right, Will? Well, yeah, I have a Bud Spencer t-shirt, and I have two Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill t-shirts. I raided the gift shop at the Bud Spencer Museum in Berlin. He went back to the gift shop. He could not get enough. This morning, we drank some Terrence Hill coffee, which which I got there. Uh, good stuff, you know? I mean, to me, Terrence Hill will always be super fuzz. And, you know, when people are wondering, like, what's beat em up Western mean? Uh, Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill would get in a lot of fist fights in all of their movies, and it was usually Bud 
Spencer hitting someone over the head with his two meaty hands, accompanied with a comedic boing sound effect. Boing. There's actually a Bud Spencer Terrence Hill beat-em-up game you can get for Nintendo Switch. That's how beloved they are. I gotta say, the game, pretty fun. Play with a friend, had a blast for a couple hours. Just one of us was Bud Spencer, the other one was Terrence Hill, and we just beat up goons across westerns, cops. Great game. I think you can get it for like five bucks on whatever video game system that you own. I played a bit of a Terrence Hill Bud Spencer video game at the Bud Spencer Museum too. Uh, also a beat em up game. It was probably the same one. Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a great time with it. I mean, I, it's great that there's such an enduring brand that they could still inspire video games. I mean, I can't think of any equivalent like American uh, comedy team. Like, you don't see an Abbott and Costello video game. Even in Italy, they were massive like their comedic films basically killed the spaghetti western and i remember there was an italian exchange film student and when she know i liked movies in high school she gave me a terrence hill film like it still continued to be popular into the 2000s i love that and we definitely uh deserve to give the two boys their own episode which will probably happen sooner rather than later yes please so as per usual you can send us letters on porn center club podcast at gmail.com and what are we doing on our patreon episode this week will well we are returning for a, for a deeper dive, a deeper dive than we've ever done into the subject of, uh, well, something very near and dear to my heart, something a little less near and dear to Justin's heart, but something near and dear to many of your hearts, Mystery Science Theater 3000. I thought we had done a whole episode about it. Will reminded me that we actually did a whole bunch of other movies as well, because it was mostly about repurposed cinema with MST3K having a slot in there. So we talk about it for 25 minutes, old episodes, favorites, what we think of the new ones. If you're an MST3K head, you'll want to check it out. A mere $5 a month at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. <laughs> what are we doing next? <laughs> well, I'm just laughing thinking about it. Yeah, I'm laughing thinking about it too. Well, we're, we're globetrotting on the important cinema club right now. We're going from country to country. We've just spent a little bit of time in Germany with Vim Vendors. Now we're going to go over to Australia, you know, the other side of the world. And we've had a lot of requests to do topics from Australia before. A lot of fine filmmakers, you know, Peter Weir, uh, uh, others probably. George Miller. Yeah, George Miller. Uh, Jane Campion, she's Australian. Uh, in fact, we've done her, haven't we? Yeah, we've done Australia. Come on. Yeah, we've done one. But, you know, we're, we're going to tackle the most important Australian filmmaker of all, Mr. Yahoo Serious. Yes. Young Einstein himself, a filmmaker that I feel is not in the conversation at all beyond being a joke in The Simpsons. I bet a lot of people thought that we were going to be doing, when I did that big intro, I bet a lot of people thought we were going to talk about Paul Hogan, which which we will at some point. <laughs> yeah. I actually asked Will, listen, Will, I know the answer is going to be no, but just in case you think we should, should we do Yahoo Sirius and Paul Hogan in the same episode. And Will went, no. And I followed up. I said, of course, Paul Hogan deserves his own episode. Yeah, it would be disrespectful to Paul, who's a true Australian national hero. But anyway. Disrespectful to Yahoo Sirius as well. That's right. And I think we're, we're just interested in Yahoo Sirius too, because it's like, this is a guy who had a brief moment with young Einstein. He was really being hyped up as well, the next Paul Hogan. Didn't really happen. He only had, there was Reckless Kelly after that. And there was, was it Mr. Accident? Is that what it was called? Yeah, Mr. Accident. So I think he only had those three movies. Well, that makes it easy. We're going to watch all three. And we're going to find out what exactly the deal and was. And we'll talk about Australia fever as well. Because that is basically the only reason he's known. So until next time. My name's Justin the Glue. And I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening.
if you are in the mood for some holiday slash Christmas movies that you've never heard of, make sure to tune in to this year's Holiday Movie Mind Melter. It is a 14-hour program of holiday movies that I show on Twitch TV slash Important Cinema Club. It is a blast, and I hope you can join us. It's happening this Saturday, December 10th, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. For more information, check out my Twitter page, DeClue J, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, the letter J. It is the first tweet pinned at the top. I would also like to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Josh Irons, Jude Lindsay, Greg McDonald, Totally Wizard, Henry, Ezekiah Bates, Adam Mosher, Zach, and Sean Belding. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. Well, fans of the director Albert Pune, director of such films as Radioactive Dreams, Cyborg, Nemesis, the 1990 Captain America, and many other cult classics, have been aware for the last little while that Albert Pune was suffering a number of health issues. And this past week, he finally passed away. Now, uh, Justin here is one of the world's foremost experts on Albert Pune. He wrote a very entertaining book uh, on, on Pune called Radioactive Dreams that I think really opened my eyes to Pune's artistry. I don't really have a question that I'm building up to, just like, have you been, you know, have you watched anything to commemorate Albert Pune? Um, have you, how, how, what have you thought also about just the outpouring, you know, like, because this is a filmmaker who, when I first heard of him back in the 90s, he was regarded with such disdain. People would call him the Ed Wood of the 90s. He seemed to have like no fans. But now, I mean, you could you saw on social media this past weekend, there were just tons of people who grew up with his movies, grew up with stuff like Cyborg and Nemesis, as well as a lot of people who've rediscovered them or discovered them for the first time in the last couple of years on, you know, beautiful Blu-ray and high definition transfers. So yeah, have you watched anything? And uh, what's it been like seeing that outpour? start with the outpouring because it's been so nice to see people say how much he meant to them as a filmmaker what i've seen over and over again is people say wow i didn't realize he directed all of these movies that i liked when i was a teenager that he didn't have the cult following that he deserved i think because he wasn't a horror filmmaker and because he made science fiction stuff when he was all over the place it was tough for him to kind of get a loyal audience while he was making movies and there was one that was always there even from the 90s that appreciated his stuff but i think that it's now that people are getting kind of like the bigger picture of his work that the outpouring of support and love and people like wanting to challenge themselves to discover things has been like really big, bigger than it ever has. And it's really gratifying seeing people watch this movie and go, wow, how did I not know that this existed? I mean, you see that a lot with radioactive dreams because like that is like the ultimate, probably one of his films to get that kind of feeling out of you. I actually did a little marathon online where I showed, I ended up showing six movies of Albert Pune to almost Almost like 200 people for the entirety of the screening and what i did see was a lot of people going whoa i i didn't appreciate this like i saw this maybe in the early 90s but i didn't realize how good it was that just makes me really happy and i talked about this in our patreon episode but i do feel like i really hope he got the sense of that before he passed away because he had did he did live his life so miserable for so long at least critically but suddenly people were like oh these films have value and when you look at the entirety of his career i think that it even means more than like his weakest films because they're all of a part 
They're like this auteurist kind of vibe that goes beyond just being films with cyborgs in them is there and it exists and it's important. And I think a lot more people are realizing that. I actually found the old review that made me not turn against Albert Pyun, but make me think, oh, is this what people think of him back in the early 2000s? And let me just read it now because... Boy, when you look at how people are reacting now, it's not even close. This guy on coldfusionvideo.com, you remember that website, right, Will? I do, yes. Wrote, so here we have a movie both written and directed by Pyun. He's speaking of Knights. The best proof of the much vaunted auteur theory in that all of his movies have a distinctiveness to them, whether he wrote the script or not. Unfortunately, that Pyun touches a positively staggering amount of suckiness. I'm not <laughs> sure that anyone has ever managed to identify exactly what it is that Mr. Pyun brings to the table. Well, uh, look at tons of reviews now online to figure it out. And he continues, I have, however, heard rumors that the Pentagon was working on an Albert Pyun DVD box set as an offensive weapon, but had to give up testing when, uh, through happenstance exposures, far too many patriotic Americans in their lab had their brains eaten by the movies being mastered. Oh, boo. Can you imagine? Boo. This is like one of the top reviews online. And the man still kept making movies. He never stopped. Up until basically the day he could not stand anymore, he continued to make movies. As if you search his name, this was the top thing that came up. And I think just with that, like, that should give him enough, you know, importance to talk about him. But hey, don't worry. The movies are fun, too. Yeah, I mean, I think he has a career that, if in no other way, resembles Edgar G. Ulmer. It's just in the sense of, like, this is it's a study of persistence. It's a study of, you know, somebody who against all odds in all of these movies. I mean, the filmography is more than the sum of its parts. There are a lot of movies that aren't very good. But even, even some of those not very good movies, even, frankly, most of those not very good movies, you see some of that vision. There's a consistent style... I mean, he had such an incredible visual imagination in all of his movies, even some of the lesser ones. He just had this like quality of like, well, if something's cool, it's going in front of my camera. And it, that was an infectious spirit that linked, you know, movies as disparate as Cyborg and Radioactive Dreams with Road to Hell. You know, they were all united in that principle. And also, a lot of those people watching those movies back in the 90s were watching them on pan and scan VHS tapes. And when you look at a movie like Crazy Six on its beautiful Blu-ray in scope, Crazy Six obviously has a lot of problems, but when you watch it in scope, it has a mood. It has a vibe. It kind of feels like, you know, like a like a little brother of an Abel Ferreira movie at times. And it's just it's just great that they can be seen. Here's what I'm gonna ask from a listener. If you have never watched an Albert Pyun film and you listen to this podcast, Go watch Radioactive Dreams. It's in its entirety on YouTube. And if you like it, and I know you'll like it, Albert Pune's widow is currently doing a GoFundMe, Albert Pune's memorial in Kalua, Hawaii. Throw 10 bucks his way. Just, you know, appreciation if you enjoy Radioactive Dreams. And then go explore the rest of his filmography on Tubi. Like, I always hear people say, oh, you guys talked up Detour so much, I had to watch it. Go watch Radioactive Dreams. <laughs> like, it's free out there. It's easy. It's like Detour. And then after that, watch Cyborg and Nemesis. Like, come on, you're going to have a, you're gonna have fun watching those movies. I, it would be difficult for me to imagine someone who listens to all of our episodes, is passionate about what we talk about, and then watch Radioactive Dreams and be like, ugh, boring, nothing there. Because <laughs> even if you don't think it works, 
You can see like all the imagination, the passion, and just the Albert Pyunness on display. Just today, I pulled up Radioactive Dreams on YouTube just to watch that scene, like that last scene of Michael Dudikoff and the other guy dancing. I mean, come on, that's pu- that's pure cinema. A, a pure, pure cinema. And know that Albert, when he shot that scene, literally the um, people were taking it almost out of his hand, shutting him down, and they did it in one shot. That's why there's a bunch of weird transitions in that uh, dance number. <laughs> it works because you can feel his presence there. And yeah, so much joy. One day it'll get a Blu-ray, who knows when, but just watch it on YouTube this way. It's the best way it'll look up until now. You'll have a blast. And then when the Blu-ray comes out, it'll be a whole new experience.